Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, guys. So uh, this is week two. We're going to get into this series called Getting Past Your Past. And um, one of the things that happened to me was a number of years ago, uh, I started dating this beautiful young lady named Lori Capiello from Chicago. And we went to the same school and we were starting to get serious. I thought I should probably meet her family, right? And so it was summer break, and I flew up to Chicago to meet her family. And um, honestly, I'm this Irish kid, right? And I don't have a big family. We're immigrants. So, you know, it's just us, and I have one aunt and uncle, and that's our family, right? And so I show up. Her sister's graduating from uh, parochial school. Show up in Chicago, and we go to this meal afterwards, and Honestly, everything that I knew about the Italian culture came from watching The Godfather. That's what I knew. <laughs> and when I looked at the people that I'd come to meet, it actually reinforced the stereotypes of The Godfather. It was just like, wow, this is just like right out of a scene from The Godfather. And I go, oh, my gosh. And there were like about 150, no exaggeration, about 150 people are there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Laura, you have a huge family. She goes, oh, this is only half the family. I'm like, seriously, wow. Um, but anyway, she had this really awesome uh, set of grandparents, and we were eating at their flat in downtown Chicago, and his name was Grandpa Poro. He came from Calabria, and he had a real thick accent, real sweet guy, and uh, he could never quite say my name, like my name is Graham, but he would always say creme. That's the best he could do. And so we're eating, and I'm eating all kinds of food, right? I've had Italian food at restaurants, or my mom would use ragu with hamburger meat. That was, you know... Sorry if you're Italian and I just offended you. I apologize. I understand the deep sense of people are like grieving, like there's a grief that has come over this congregation. Oh, I mean, she was Irish. Forgive her. She didn't know any better. But uh, we're sitting there. I'm eating all this incredible food. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know people could make all this homemade and make it taste so amazing. But then we came to this one thing, and I didn't know what it was. And I said, okay, it's not spinach. It's not kale or collard greens, but it looks something like that. And he has a big smile, and he goes, oh, you got to try this. And I'm like, okay. He puts it on my plate. I take a big bite of it. Now, I don't even know to this day. I still do not know what it is. There's different regions in Italy. They have their own dialects. So I don't know, but he called it arapa. And all I know was it was like taking a big old spoonful of Chinese mustard and just chomping on it. Now, Chinese mustard's okay as a condiment, but not as the main thing. And I remember just chewing on that going, oh my gosh, if he wasn't looking at me right now, I would just spit this out. Like, it's nasty. And I remember I just could not get that taste out of my mouth fast enough. Well, you know what I found out? Sometimes some of the things that happen to us in life when people sin against us can leave a very bitter taste in our mouth. And sometimes it's sort of like we've been wounded, we've been hurt, and what can happen is we can become angry and mad and start to develop a grudge, and we become bitter. And the problem with that is that ends up hurting us. And the longer we hold on to it, the more toxic it is. And it's sort of like instead of getting to the places God wants us to go, we get stuck in hurt, in anger, in pain. And I believe what God wants to show us how to do is get past bitterness and get past unforgiveness. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I remember when I was growing up, I was a little bit older. I was probably, a, you know, like 16 or 17, but there were some younger kids in our neighborhood. And this one kid was kind of a troublemaker, and he'd hang out with my younger brother. And one day where we lived, we had rattlesnakes. Now, usually you could hear a rattlesnake, right? And you just stay away from them. 
But he dared this young kid to pick up a rattlesnake. What a punk, right? That was just a punk, man. And so that kid didn't want to chicken out. So this kid goes to pick up the rattlesnake. Well, if you've ever seen them move, they're lightning quick. And that rattlesnake just fastened right onto that kid's arm, injected its venom. Next thing you know, right, the ambulance is rolling up into the neighborhood. They're rushing him there. And you know what they do when you have a bite from a snake? They give you an antidote. And the purpose of an antidote is to neutralize the venom that's been injected into your bloodstream so it doesn't either severely harm you or kill you. And so that kid was okay. And here's what I want to submit to you today, that God has given us an antidote that can help us live free from bitterness, and that is simply forgiveness. And I would just say this, that there is no such place, uh, there's no place of neutrality when it comes to these issues. You, you can't just kind of sit in the middle. You pick one or the other. You choose forgiveness or you choose bitterness by default. And that's the main thing I want to get across to you today. If you don't choose forgiveness, and it is definitely a choice that you have to make, by default, you're choosing bitterness. So I want to talk just a little bit about the power of the cross. And I know it's sort of like the unofficial logo of Christianity, right? It's our logo, right? But I love what the theologian N.T. Wright says of it. He said, to understand how first and second century people thought of the cross, it would be like you and I hanging an electric chair around our necks, which is a form of punishment, right? And so uh, we don't really think of it the way they did, but the Romans had a lot of ways to kill you. But one of the ways that they used, not against their own citizens, because if you were a Roman citizen, they could not crucify you. It was saved for their worst enemies. And one of the ways they killed was this long, excruciating death called crucifixion. And I know we are used to seeing crucifixion happen where, you know, it's like you think they're 15, 20 feet in the air and you're looking up at them, right? Because we've all seen these movies of Jesus. But the Romans crucified you at about five or six feet just off the ground. Why? So that when you walked by, you could see eyeball to eyeball this person who was suffering. Now, we think that Jesus went there voluntarily, right, to suffer for us. But the Romans did it to send a message. Psychologically, it was a message of intimidation that said, if you don't do what we want you to do, this could be your fate. And it was a way to also humiliate you. And so that's what Jesus went through, right? He went through all of that on the cross. And they were sending a message, but God was sending a message about his kingdom that day that Jesus died on the cross. And in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. And the Apostle Paul, he talked a lot about the power of the cross. He talked about boasting in the cross. He got persecuted because of his belief in the cross. But it's at the cross that we encounter the love of God. It's at the cross that we encounter life change and transformation where what Ezekiel prophesied, that God puts a new spirit and a new heart within us. We become new creations. We're born again of the spirit of God. We're raised from, from death to life. We're no longer the one who lives, but Christ lives in us. Why? Because we've been crucified with him. We encounter life transformation there. We encounter the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross, we encounter God's grace that says, you are accepted, you're holy, and you're blameless. You now belong to me, and you are welcome to come. The Bible says, come boldly, not timidly, boldly to the throne. 
you are welcome there because of the cross. And one of the most amazing things we encounter at the cross is forgiveness. And see, I think when we encounter God's forgiveness, that creates within us the capacity to forgive others. Because when you experience something, Jesus said, what you have freely received, you now have the capacity to give it away freely. And I like to say it this way, forgiven people forgive. We looked at this last week, but let's just read it one more time. Part of the Lord's Prayer. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And so God's intention is for us to give it away, to cancel people's debt. And I would argue this, that being a forgiving person doesn't make you a weak person. In fact, it's just the opposite. Pride and anger make you weak. They make you hold on to bitterness and a grudge. But when we forgive, it breaks the chains that hold us to the past. So I would say forgiveness is not a passive act, but an aggressive one. Let's look at Ephesians 4.26 real quick. It says, if you are angry, don't sin by nursing your grudge. Don't let the sun go down with you still angry. Get over it quickly. For when you are angry, you give a mighty foothold to the devil. So God is saying, first of all, don't even let one day go by where you sit on anger and being mad at people and being bitter. God says, deal with it immediately. And then he says, get over it quickly. Now, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that can irritate me is somebody saying, hey, just get over it. Does that ever irritate him? Am I the only one? Thank you for this therapy session for me. I just get to kind of like tell you what really bothers me. It really bothers me when they say, get over it. But God does say that to me. He says, get over it quickly. But then he tells me why. He says, Graham, here's the reason why. Because if you hold on to your anger, you're going to give the devil access to your life. Like if I don't want flies in my house, I got to keep the door shut, right? If you get angry and bitter and you hold on to it and you choose not to forgive, what happens is you've given him access. He's got an opportunity now to get involved in your life. And so we need to shut that door. And I like to say it this way, Anger is like a gateway drug for bitterness and unforgiveness. And so it's easy to get stuck there. And, and I would say this too, Satan loves bitter Christians. Why? Because they can hurt you. John Maxwell used to say it this way, hurting people hurt other people. And you know, I would have just one more thing. Do you know a lot of the people that you and I meet that are bitter, you know, they usually have a very good reason for being bitter. There's usually a good reason. But God gives us a reason not to be. And let's just go down a little bit further. Verse 31, stop being bitter and angry and mad at others. Don't yell at one another or curse or cuss each other or ever be rude. So this is crazy. It's telling us not to be bitter and angry and mad, right? But then it says, don't yell at one another. Now, I want you to understand something. That language there is talking about yelling, not in private. This isn't like you and your wife getting mad and then you just go off on each other, right? Which I never do, by the way. But anyways... But this is not that. This is actually talking about like you're, this is that couple that kind of embarrasses everyone at the restaurant where you just kind of go like this because like they are so mad that they don't care that there's a room with 50 other people in it. Like they just go off on it. This is the housewives of Orange County in Atlanta combined, man. Where's the throwing wine? Let's throw some wine at each other and just go ballistic, right? He's saying, don't do that. Well, God, what, if, what are we going to do if we're not going to do that, if we're not going to blow up? He's saying, resolve it, deal with it. You know, um, I think 
There's a quote that I'm going to read to you in just a moment from Joyce Meyer, but just to preface this quote, just to give you context for a quote, I'm only going to tell you a little bit of this story. She has an amazing story about forgiveness, um, which you can see on YouTube. You can, you can read it in her book. She's written about it, and it's pretty amazing. I'm giving you just a smidgen of it. But listen to what she says. These are her words. I'm just going to read it for you. Well, I was sexually, mentally, emotionally, and verbally abused by my father as far back as I can remember until I left home at the age of 18. He did many terrible things, some which are too distasteful for me to talk about publicly. But I want to share my testimony because so many people have been hurt and they need to realize that someone has made it through their struggles. Now, that's heavy. And she talked about the fact that her mom, her dad raped her over 200 times that she can remember. She talked about having her mom being, she was 14, her mom walked into the room and saw her being raped by her dad, turned around and walked out and did nothing to protect her. Now, that's a person who could go through the rest of their life just messed up. It's crazy, right? But listen to what she said about this, and I think there's some insight for us. She said, I know from personal experience how damaging it can be to live with bitterness and unforgiveness. I like to say it's like taking poison and hoping your enemy will die. Why is that? Because anger and bitterness and unforgiveness are toxic. They eat us alive from the inside out. It's really harmful. And God just says, let's get rid of that. Get that out of your life. So how do we do it, Lord? Verse 32, instead, move in the opposite spirit of what's been done to you. Be kind and merciful. Forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. In other words, Peter would say it this way, don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. You know, that's blessing those who curse you. That's praying for those who persecute you. That's turning the other cheek. That's learning how to move in an opposite spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of the kingdom of God. And so we have to learn how to forgive. And so I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness. Before I do that, I want to tell you a little story. This is a, a story that I'm not making up, I promise you. When you um, have been pastoring as long as I have, uh, you get some really interesting things that happen occasionally. I'm just going to say it that way. Well, this was a Sunday morning, and I remember it was like uh, there was a member of my church that was there that day, and he was a martial arts guy. He was a stuntman, stunt director. And a couple of guys had flown in to train with him, and he'd been training them for a couple of weeks. And so he got them to come to church. That's a good thing, right? These guys don't know Jesus. Hey, why don't you come to church? So they came to church. I met them before the service. And we're like, we've gone through worship. We're at the very end of the service. I'm like five minutes from landing the plane. And all of a sudden, this one young guy that he brought, I'm guessing he's maybe 20, he just starts kind of acting weird, like just kind of like, I'm like, what is wrong? And my ushers are like looking at me, and they're like, kind of like motioning, do you want us to like take him out of here? And I'm like, no, no, you know what? It's going to cause a, a big commotion. That's all people will remember when they walk out of here that we had to remove someone. Let's just pray. So I'm just like, let's land it quicker, pray, closed it. And so I'm, I'm thinking it's over, right? Next thing I know, now there's stuff that's going on that I know nothing about. Next thing I know, like through the sanctuary doors, he comes in from the lobby and I'm like standing just talking to people. And all of a sudden this young guy runs, I mean, flies past me runs up onto our stage, which was quite a bit bigger than this one, and is up there and just kind of wigging out. And now I have ushers up there trying to subdue him. So we found out from his parents later on, 
you know, we called and eventually called in a code and had people subdue him and they put him in for psychological observation for like three days. And his parents called us at, at the church and said, hey, you know, we want you to know what happened to our son. He's a good kid, but he hadn't been taking his meds for two weeks. And he had like a break. And we didn't know that. We just saw a kid kind of freaking out, right? And we're trying to help him. But what I also didn't know was that in the lobby, he had spit in the face of his instructor. Now, that's one thing to spit in someone. Nobody likes that, but you're probably not very smart to spit in the face of a guy who's like a trained weapon. And so I'm like, this is, this is great. So this guy walks in very calmly, and um, he walks up to me, and he, he says, Pastor Graham? I said, yeah, what's up, Arnold? He goes, um, you know, would you like me to take him out? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, you, uh, you brought him. You should take him home. I want to show you who Arnold is, by the way, the guy that's asking this question. I go, uh, yeah, you know, that makes sense to me. Like, you brought the guy. Why don't you take him out? And so he goes, okay. He goes up on stage while my ushers are holding him, and he throws like a vicious right hook, <laughs> clocks him on the jaw, pulls him into a Muay Thai clinch, and starts kneeing him. And now I've got like a brawl between him, his instructor, and my ushers. It's like a melee up there, and I'm like, oh, my God. This just got really weird. Here was the problem. I misunderstood what he meant <laughs> when he said, do you want me to take him out? I thought he just meant, like, take him home. He meant, like, take him out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's not good. Now, here's what I think. When a lot of us hear that God wants us to forgive, we do what I did with Arnold. We misunderstand what that actually means. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of times if you've been victimized and you've been really wounded and hurt by people, a lot of times when you hear these messages, it almost sounds like it's all on you. And you're like, well, what about the other person? They're the one who perpetrated this sin. What about them? Well, we'll talk about that. But I want you to understand what it is and what it isn't. So let's just kind of go quickly through a few things that it is. Number one, it's canceling a debt. I think we made that real clear last week. It's canceling a debt. You're saying, hey, you know what? You don't owe me anything, okay? Number two, it's a decision and a process. What does that mean, decision and process? Well, first of all, it's a choice. You are choosing as an act of your will in submission to Jesus to do what he's asked you to do, not because you feel like it, not because you necessarily want to, but because you know he's asked you to. So you're choosing, and I like to say it this way, choices lead, feelings follow. It might take away a while for your feelings to catch up. And here's another thing. Here's another reason why it's a process. I've been in situations where forgiveness took me three years to accomplish it. You say, what do you mean? Didn't you just choose to forgive? Yeah, I did. But guess what? Next week, something else happened. And the week after that, something else happened, and it went on for three years, and I couldn't disentangle completely. It was a process. Some of you have been through custody battles or divorces or lawsuits, and you know that sometimes they're not resolved overnight. So you've got to stay with that process, and you've got to keep your heart pointed north, that compass of forgiveness. You've got to keep it pointed there, and you'll work through it. And eventually, your feelings will catch up. Number three, it's a gift for them. It releases them from your wrath, and it releases you from bitterness. Number four, it's genuinely wanting good for them. Why do I say that? Because one of the ways that you can learn to overcome when you forgive somebody is start praying for them. Jesus said, pray for those people who are giving you a hard time right now or persecuting you. I don't feel like praying for them. How many know when you're saying, Lord, I really pray that you'll bless them? You can't fake God out like it's got, you know? 
And so as you're praying for God to bless them, guess what happens? You start picking up, you're acting like your Father in heaven. You're building that muscle up, that spiritual muscle. You may not feel like you're there today, but don't worry about it. Stay with it. That muscle will grow when you use it. Number uh, four, or five, excuse me, let God avenge you. This is a big one. Guys, if you've been sinned against and you've been wounded and you've had things happen to you like Joyce Meyer or whatever, um, sometimes one of the questions we get is like, if I forgive them, it feels like they're just getting off the hook. Well, you have to understand your forgiveness is for your sake and not necessarily for their sake. And secondly, God says, vengeance is mine. I will do the repayment process, not you. You and I are not good at the whole vengeance business. How do I know this? Because where I grew up, when people cut someone off on the freeway, they would pull up to the off-ramp and kill them for cutting them off in a lane. That's not exactly the kind of punishment we want. God is saying, they're not getting away with anything. Because sometimes you go, well, I forgive them. Does that mean they just get off the hook? No, no, no. We're all going to stand before God someday, all of us, and we'll give an account for everything we've said and every action we've taken. We will be accountable. And they will too. What you're doing is taking that desire for revenge and you're saying, God, I relinquish this. I let it go and I'm putting it in your hands. I'm going to leave you and let you be the judge because you've asked me to. You said, vengeance is mine. Leave it to me. And so we take it out of our hands and we put it in his hands, and God will deal with people whether we forgive them or not. And finally, it's removing that person's control of you. I love what Booker T. Washington said. He said, I will never allow another man to control my life by allowing him to make me hate him. What does that mean? It means I can't control how people treat me, but I certainly can control my response to them. Does that make sense? All right. Let's look at five things that forgiveness is not. These are equally important. Now, by the way, if you are having a hard time and you like notes or whatever, we do have this on our website or on our app. You'll find these notes there as well. Number one, it's not diminishing sin. I see people do this a lot. Now, somebody will walk up and they'll say, hey, you know, would you forgive me? I did this and such and something. You go, oh, no, it's nothing. Well, if it was nothing, that's fine. But if it was something and you just don't want to acknowledge it, hey, pay them the respect of acknowledging the fact that they had the courage to come to you and ask and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming and saying that. I appreciate your humility, and let's move on. How about this? It's, this is a big one right here. Oh, man, this is a big one. I wish I would have known this one. It's not a response to an apology. We are told to forgive people whether they say they're sorry or not for our sake. And if you are waiting for an apology before you forgive, some of you are going to wait a long time. Have you ever dealt with a narcissist? They can do no wrong. There are some people, guys, that have wounded you and sinned against you, and they're never, I mean, never going to own it. In fact, some of the people that have sinned against you never owned it, and they're in the grave right now, and you're still struggling with the wounds they inflicted on you. It's for your sake. Let it go. Apology not required. I cancel your debt. If you apologize, that's a bonus. But if you don't, I'm going to stay clean. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to get past my past. Number three, it's not forgetting. Help me out on this one. We all know this one, right? To forgive is to... Now, you can't fail this, right? And if you do, I'll forgive you anyways. Are you ready? Let's try it one more time. To forgive is to... Thank you so much. Janie, go to the head of the class there for saying it first. Anyways... 
where do we get this theology that to forgive it, to forget? We, we get it from the Bible. And here's what people do. They take scriptures like Jeremiah 31, 34, and it'll say, God says, your sins will I remember no more. And they say, well, you know, when God forgives my sins, he throws them into the sea of forgetfulness, and he doesn't even remember them. Is that what that means? Because the Bible's an eternal book, isn't it? And yet I can find the sins of a lot of the people who are in the Hall of Fame of Faith clearly written out in great detail in my Bible. It is obvious that God has not forgotten, and he actually told me about that. It wasn't just like, oh, this is between us, me and you, Abraham, like the fact that you like did your wife wrong a couple of times, like said, yeah, she's not my wife. Go ahead and take her. It's like, Graham's going to know about it, all right? Like, and all my kids are going to know about this, all right? It's not hidden. What does it mean that God forgets? It means that he, I choose no longer to interact with you based on your failure. I choose to interact with you based on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and that you are accepted holy and blameless in my sight. I choose that interaction with you. Because Joseph, to me, is a lot like Jesus. He's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, sold off as a slave, left in a pit. And then when you, can't think, when, when you think life can't get any worse, he's sold, uh, he's, he's sold down the river by a lady who falsely accuses him of rape, and he ends up in prison. Well, we know he gets out of prison. He gets married. He has two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, we know in Bible days, names actually mean things, right? It's not just like, oh, that's a cool name. No, it actually meant something. Manasseh means God has made me forget all the troubles of my father's house. So has Joseph forgotten? According to him, he has. And yet I can fast forward about 15 or so years from that time, and I can find him sitting in the presence of his brothers where that dream that he had as a 17-year-old starts to happen right in front of his eyes. They're all bowed down. They don't know who he is because he looks like an Egyptian, talks like one, walks like one, acts like one, you know? And they don't know he understands. And they start going, hey, we think all these bad things are happening because of all the bad stuff we did to Joseph. And the Bible says that he broke down and cried three times so, so uh, heavily that he had to exit the room to compose himself and come back. Are you telling me that Joseph didn't remember what they did to him? Are you telling me that he had forgiven them and he didn't remember it? No, no, no. You know what, you know what Joseph is saying when he said Manasseh? That's me looking at the scar on my elbow that I got as an eight-year-old when I slid in a pile of water and I skinned up my elbow and I had a big old scar there for a long time. That means I can look at that now, and I remember, but it didn't bother me at all. Some of the biggest blowouts I ever had with people, it doesn't bother me today because God's grace is there to help us get over it. He can help us move on, but it's not forgetting. And if you think, well, I haven't forgiven them because I still remember it, you might be there forever then because you will remember. All right, forgiveness isn't trust. Why? Because trust is gained slowly and lost quickly. If my neighbor is a thief and they come and steal stuff from my house because I have given them a key, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to forgive my neighbor, but I'll tell you what else I'm going to do. I'm going to call the locksmith or I'm going to go to Lowe's and buy a bunch of brand new locks and put them on my door because I forgive you, but I don't trust you. I can forgive you without trusting you. How about this? And this is another big one. It's not reconciliation. You can forgive someone without being their friend. Did you know that? I know that's hard for some of you to imagine, but you can. There are some people that are so toxic that you don't really necessarily want them in your life right now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If God gives you an assignment, that's different, all right? If God gives you an assignment and says, hey, help this toxic person, but some people, they're going to mess with you. And so it's not reconciliation. Why do I say that? Because 
I used to think that forgiveness meant reconciliation, and that's a different subject. To restore a relationship and to be reconciled takes two people owning their business together, coming together in a spirit of humility and saying, hey, I'm sorry, hey, I'm sorry too. Let's make it right. Now we can walk on together. Now, there's some people that you might say, well, I've forgiven them. They're not my friend anymore. And I'm really not praying for restoration because, you know, I just don't have a desire. But there's other people where relationships have been blown up, and I've been praying for restoration for years, and I will continue to until they're restored. So, but again, it's important to know that it's not reconciliation. So let's wrap this up today. Um, I want to tell you a story. Uh, There was a book that I, I heard recommended a number of years ago, and it was called Unbroken. Um, the lady who wrote it, she also wrote a novel called Sea Biscuit. She is, I don't know, maybe, maybe the best writer I have ever read personally. Uh, her style of writing, I enjoy it. Like, it is a book that I literally could not put down. But it's called Unbroken, and it was the life story of a guy whose parents were from Italy. They were the only Italians in Torrance, California, and because he was an immigrant's son, he was bullied and picked on. His name was Louis Zamperini. And when Louis got into high school, his brother talked him into going into track and field. Well, Louis Zamperini found out that he could actually run really fast. As a matter of fact, by the time he graduated high school, he'd become the fastest miler in all the United States. And at age 18, he tried out for and made the United States Olympic team and ran In the 1936 Olympics, his roommate was Jesse Owens. Now, he didn't win any medals there. But when he came out of there, he went to the University of Southern California, started running track there, and he became the fastest miler in the world. And people said, this guy's going to win the gold in the 1940 Olympics. But something happened called World War II. And Louis gets pulled as an officer out of school put on a bombing squad, a big bomber, and he's flown a bunch of missions. And one day, he's given orders to take out an unworthy aircraft by his senior officer to do a search and rescue. And he complains, and they said, I don't care, you're going. They made them go in this unfit aircraft, and their aircraft went down. Seven or eight guys died instantly. Three of them lived. All the supplies were lost. They had one candy bar, and this big guy ate the candy bar while they were sleeping. He didn't last but maybe a few days, and he died. But Louis and another guy set a record for endurance. They survived in a raft that drifted 2,000 miles from where they went down for 47 days without food and water. That's rain coming, that seagulls landing on your, on your thing, you kill it, eat it raw, whatever you do. They survived. Now, a great story would have been that, you know, an allied ship picked him up, but he was picked up by a Japanese destroyer. He had lost half of his body weight. And we know that the Japanese were notorious for how they treated their POWs. We've all heard about the death marches. They were notorious. And so they took this guy, and right away they knew that he was an Olympic athlete. And they tried to turn him into a propaganda piece, and he wasn't going to go for that. And so um, what happened was there was a guard in that camp that he was in, and his name was Mitsuhiro Watanabe. His nickname was The Bird. He was a little guy with a nasty complex. In fact, he was a guard that was hated and despised by all the other guards. And after the war, he was ranked number seven 
for the most wanted war criminals in all of Japan. That's a vicious guy. Now, because he knew who Louis was and he had a complex, he made it his personal mission to destroy Louis. He did everything he could to humiliate him and destroy him as an individual. He gave him tasks that most of us could never do, but because, because Louis was such an incredible athlete with a steel mental will, he could do things that, no, like one of them was he made him hold a log above his head. And he said, he put a guard there and he said, if he, dro if he drops that log at all, shoot him. Now, if any of you lift weights, you know that if you had your arms extended holding weights, you begin to fatigue. He left him there for hours. And this guy was malnourished, but he wouldn't break. He had an iron will. One of his punishments, you can see it in the movie directed by Angelina, Angelina Jolie. He had the guards hold Louis's arms by his side. There were 220 other inmates there. And he said, I want all of you to walk up and one by one strike Louis on the face as hard as you can. Well, the first two guys pulled their punches. The bird ordered them to be beaten in front of all the other prisoners, and they viciously beat those two men that pulled their punches. So Louis called out, to 218 guys, he said, hit me as hard as you can. And they did. Each guy went through it and threw the hardest blow they could. He faded in and out of consciousness. You couldn't recognize his face. It was disfigured for, for days and weeks. That was just one punishment. He suffered. When he came home, because of who he was, he survived the war. He was a war hero because he was an Olympian. They sent him on a speaking tour to talk about what happened, and he hated it. He didn't want to remember all that pain. And so to steady his nerves before he'd get up, he said, I started out by just taking one drink to steady my nerves before I talked. Well, they know a lot about PTSD today, but they didn't back then. And in a short order, Louis is a raging alcoholic. And he's out of control. He can't keep jobs. He's famous, but he's doing something. He's medicating. Every night, he drinks himself to sleep because he has nightmares every single night. He he goes to sleep, and he wakes up with a nightmare where he sees this guy beating him. And so he tries to drink himself unconscious every night. And in the meantime, he's gotten married. Now he has a kid. How many know that marriage isn't going to do too well with a guy like that? And sure enough, they're getting divorced. His wife's from the East Coast. He's from L.A. So she flies back home, flies back out to collect her belongings and take them back home to live with her parents. And while she's there at her apartment complex, one of her neighbors, a friend, walks up and says, hey, you got to come to this meeting. There's a young guy here, and I think he has a message that you would uh, enjoy hearing. His name is Billy Graham. It was the first big tent revival he ever did in L.A. She came, gave her life to Jesus that night, and she's intending on divorcing this guy, but she got so excited about it, she said, you got to come and hear this guy. So eventually he comes, Billy preaches, and he starts to pray. The moment he prays, he gets up angry, you know, and just walks out. Well, she talks him to coming back one more time, and he goes, I'm going to get up the moment he prays. And she says, okay, whatever. So he starts praying, and all of a sudden, Louis gets up, and he starts to walk. Next thing you know, he stops dead in his tracks, and he says, I remember the vow I made to the Lord on that raft. Lord, if you keep me alive, I'll give you my life. And so that night, he prayed with Billy Graham. And what's an amazing to me about this story is I know we have a lot of people that have worked through recovery here, and I, I appreciate you guys. Louis did not do the 12-step program. That night, he said for the first time that he could remember in a long time, without one drink of alcohol, he laid his head on his pillow and he slept like a baby. He lived to be 95 or 96, and he said he never had another nightmare about the war.
God so radically delivered him through the power of the cross. And one of the things that happened was Billy Graham said, come with me to Japan. And he took him to the war criminal prison called Sugamo. And he met with a bunch of guards there and forgave him. And he asked about the bird. And they'd all said the bird was dead. And so he said, in his own words, he said, I had to forgive in order to move on. That's why I forgave. Um, the next thing that happened was in 1998, the Olympic Committee invited him to run a relay of the torch in Japan for the Olympics that year. He accepted that invitation. A 60 Minutes reporter began to dig into who is this guy, Louis Zamperini, and began to understand his life and found out what had happened to him. And so he did some research, and he found out that the bird had not actually committed suicide. As a matter of fact, the bird was living a very prosperous life as an insurance salesman. And when they did an interview with him, he was completely unrepentant, didn't own anything. And they said, would you like to meet with Louis? And he said, nope, no need to. And then the reporter reached out to Louis and he said, Louis, would you like to say something to the bird? Would you like to write him a letter? And Louis said, I'd like to write him a letter. And I'd like us to listen this morning to the late Louis Zamperini read the letter that he wrote to the bird who tried to destroy his life. When you went back to Japan, you, you shared the gospel with some of the very guards that mistreated you and you wanted to meet the bird, but you were told the bird was dead. He wasn't, but you didn't know that at the no, time. But you wrote him a letter. Do you have that letter with you? I, yeah, I brought it with me. This is the letter that Louis wrote to the bird. You want me to read it? Yo, would you okay. read it, please? <laughs> okay. This is to Matsushiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and original punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. I, it was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live under the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you, and Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you, and now I would hope that you would also become a Christian. Amen. That's uh, forgiveness. Guys, that seems like a great place to end today. Why don't we pray? Because... I want to ask you to do something for your sake today. I want you to choose forgiveness. I want you to choose forgiveness. And maybe you've already figured out that holding on to a grudge and holding on to bitterness isn't helping you get better. It's not helping you heal. And God wants you to get better. So maybe you're in an ongoing situation right now with somebody, or maybe it's just something that was done to you and 
I don't want to ever minimize what people have done to you. I don't want to make it sound like it was nothing. It, it was a big deal. It hurt you. It was a big deal. But if there's a person or persons right now, maybe they're even dead and in the grave as we speak, that has wounded you. And you're saying, you know what? I need to forgive them. Uh, today, I want to I wanna help you let go of that. And we can let go of it by just choosing forgiveness. So if you're here today and you want to let it go, I want to lead you in a prayer. And just pray it with me as you see that person or persons, whatever, whoever they may be. And just know that today, as an act of your will, it's been done. You might say, what if I feel that emotion rising up again? It's okay. It's done. You can just thank the Father that they are forgiven and that you're not going to. You're not going to take any of that anger back. It's not yours anymore. Pray this prayer. Just say, Father, only you understand how much I've been hurt by these people. I don't want to carry the pain for another second. I don't want to be a bitter person, but I need your grace and the power of the cross to release my hurt and to forgive those who hurt me. I'm choosing today to forgive the way you have forgiven me. Every time the memory comes back, please remind me that their debt is canceled. Heal my heart with your grace in Jesus' name. And while we're just in this attitude of prayer, I just want to say that, guys, that's a courageous act. And you know what? I believe for some of us in here today, we experience freedom. We were able to let go of the past and now you can move on with what God has for you. And one other thing, we talked about forgiving others, but if you're here today, the most important thing is what you do with Jesus. You might be like me. I grew up believing that he was the son of God. I grew up believing he could save me, that he could deliver me from my sins. I believed all that. I just never did anything about it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you believe all that, but you've never really, really said yes to following him and embracing him and receiving him as the Lord of your life. If you're here today, I want to give you that opportunity in just a moment to pray with me. And I promise you this, the Bible simply says this. It's not my promise. It's God's promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's his promise to you today. Just simply calling out to his name is all it takes to put your trust and your faith in him. And he will come and save you and do a work on the inside of you. So if you're here today and you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, it's about joining this church. I want you to just pray a simple prayer with me. Just say, Jesus, I'm calling on you now. Forgive my sins. Heal my heart. Come into my life. I believe that you are the son of God, that you rose from the dead. And today, I'm putting all my faith and all my trust in you. Be Lord of my life. Amen. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, 
check out Believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at Believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast. Thank you.